Welcome to today's edition of the NPM Podcast. I'm John Burke, Managing Editor of New Project Media. And joining me today is Ruben Munger, Managing Partner of the Colorado-based Vision Ridge Partners. Welcome to the program today, Ruben. Hey, John. It's great to be here. Look forward to the conversation. Great. So Vision Ridge has raised over $2.5 billion through its three sustainable asset funds, including having recently closed on its $1.125 billion Sustainable Asset Fund 3. Ruben is here to discuss his views on the energy transition. So Ruben, Vision Ridge, um, based on its portfolio of investments, has remained committed to energy transition from the start, from its 2014 vintage through today. Uh, Can you walk us through why you chose to invest this way at the very beginning, and maybe talk about some of the lessons learned along the way? Absolutely. For, for us, you know, the journey of, of what are real assets and the fact that the future suggests the real assets, you know, are by definition sustainable real assets has been sort of formative to how we've approached our investing from, you know, not just the beginning of the institutional funds in, in 2014, but sort of as colleagues and collaborators, uh, you know, we've all been working on this and this framework since 2008. In order to have a world of 10 billion people, you need to have a sustainable infrastructure system. And so it stops being a question of just the transition, but it's it's a sort of necessary reality. And as investors, the premise that these things provide not just returns, this is a non-concessionary activity. That was sort of the first thing that we proved in, in our first fund, but really this transition is core to where assets need to be is, is increasingly realized and the scale of the opportunity set has been growing. And so for us, it's just continuing to run down that learning curve and stay at the front of what is required for the transition and you know what and how the economics pencil out to, to deploy infrastructure that matters across power, mobility, and, and agriculture. Great. So um, you guys recently uh, got an exit there when you sold uh, your wetland mitigation banking assets. Uh, Can you walk us through that transaction a little bit as well as uh, how it fits within your mindset of of, uh, sustainable assets? Absolutely, we were were lucky. We we partnered with a group called the Earth Partners uh, to begin acquiring a set of mitigation banks in the sort of greater Houston part of Texas. And mitigation banking has a few institutional players, but it's relatively emergent in that opportunity in the kind of 2014 and 2015 timeframe. And so for us, there was a real opportunity to come in and apply, you know, sort of rigor and analysis around how these environmental attributes are are best monetized uh, and found a series of of transactions we were able to assemble a large portfolio um, and build and execute over the subsequent period of time, you know, a monetization of that period of, of that portfolio where effectively in a mitigation bank, you, you operate wetland restoration at scale and that helps provide the offsets that are required to otherwise allow development and other things so that, you know, in, in aggregate um, development can happen, whether you're going to expand a highway or, or, you know, sort of build a community or, or any of those kinds of things, you're, you're displacing the environment and yet you really need that infrastructure to exist. And, and wetlands, in fact, were, were key to um, flood mitigation in, in um, hurricanes and other things that have hit the greater Houston area where these assets provide real valuable infrastructure. And so the mechanism made a lot of sense. And 
the team did a good job sort of accelerating the sell through of the credits and and building and and kind of perfecting a nice portfolio of assets and like many things that we do over time institutional increase in investment investor in interest increased uh, such that we were able to then you know find a strategic buyer who thought that these were really attractive things to own for their portfolio and and often that's at a different cost of capital than than where we perhaps uh, rolled up our sleeves and did some of the earlier work and so you know, I think it was a good outcome for for the banks and and you know the Houston area a great outcome for us and and a you know an attractive path for for our management team partners and and the buyer great um, just hold on for one second. Sorry. Okay, great. Okay, going to our next question. Um, so, uh, areas where you've invested in previously, uh, such as solar uh, and RNG, are sort of dealing with some short-term issues today, uh, or the perception of short-term issues uh, for solar. Uh, it, it's supply chain on a few different levels. Um, and for RNG, um, we're kind of at a low ebb on LCFS prices. Um, just wanted to get your views on this in terms of how sustainable uh, these trends will be, and whether we might, might when we might see a rebound, particularly with LCFS. You know, it's been a specialty of yours. Yeah, I mean, I think I would I would split the 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 there are a series of subsets to your to your question from a from a renewables development whether it's solar or wind or other things right like there's there's a subset of supply chain issues that are either disrupting delivery and or changing pricing and so you know i kind of want to leave aside the the near term tariff issues but you know in general these kinds of capital goods are costing more and you know we're seeing that it is likely to be endemic right whether it's higher steel prices or higher shipping costs or higher labor costs all of those things are happening and then you know in some ways as important for for renewables is higher capital costs right and so capital costs are also an important input onto the sort of long-term cost of, of energy which is where they like to compete at the same time you know with natural gas prices where they are you know electricity prices are way way up and therefore Renewables remain to be quite interesting from a competitive perspective as long-term suppliers to the energy infrastructure. And so for us, if you get outside of, of the, the tariff piece where we don't have anything in the near term that is exposed to that, so we're hopeful that it can get worked through, but it's not sort of core to our day-to-day, we see a lot of opportunity and a lot of the other issues are, even if they're structural and, and sustained, they're they're just changing the arc of where things are. And they're also a little bit more on the stock versus the flow side. So natural gas and oil prices are really drivers of the flow and flow disruptions and flow pricing is massively impactful and increases the sort of volatility and the uncertainty of inflation. Whereas once you get a renewable asset in place, you have a a much higher certainty of cost and of, of sort of power delivery. So I think the system keeps going and there's real opportunity there and we continue to be be pretty excited on the RNG side on renewable natural gas. Um, you know, I think there are a couple of different components where, particularly LCFS, is relevant for the manure gas business, but not necessarily for organic gas or landfill gas. And so, you know, within the subset of manure gas, where you know, to the to the positive, uh, manure gas has an incredibly good carbon intensity score, right? It, it offsets a lot of methane release and therefore is highly valued in the California system and therefore monetizes itself through the low carbon fuel standard. Uh, I think the 
you know, the tricky part is we're finally hitting a, an inflection point in renewable diesel and some of the other inputs into the low carbon fuel standard. And so the market had been effectively tight and undersupplied versus uh, now you're seeing a lot of supply come on. And, and some of these things have incredibly uh, high value uh, within that California standard. And so you know, over time, CARB had sort of laid out a policy goal uh, where I think prices were probably above the policy goal. And now you know they may be a little bit below it. But if you look into the long-term, what are CARB's goals as the Air Resources Board in terms of where you want to set LCFS and what can happen from there? Uh, you know, every consultant has a curve and a plan. Um, it's just like power. We try to look probabilistically at what are the various inputs and what does that do to the supply and demand of, of LCFS? And so, you know, it's an area that matters not just for, for RNG, but for electric vehicle infrastructure as well. Um, so it's an area we, we, we keep a strong eye on. Uh, we've been involved with for, for quite some time on both the, the electric vehicle and the RNG side. So uh, I'm not going to make a prediction for where it's going to go, but it, it's definitely been an interesting one to watch over, over the last you know, year or so. So from a, a policy perspective, um, have you seen any other states start to really advance uh, RNG uh, that, that have looked attractive, I guess. I mean, we've covered Oregon before through the clean fuel standard and some other legislation that's come up in, in places, I think, like Minnesota and Colorado and New York. But, you know, people, when they talk about feeding into the, the RNG market or the attractiveness of it, it still goes back to California uh, in terms of the people we talk to in the market. So just staying on that front, I'd sort of like to get your views as to if other, other states have started to catch up or make advancements that, that are material. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot, a lot of value in the expansion of, of some version of a low carbon fuel standard. It's a really attractive mechanism to help understand and support whether it's EV infrastructure or, or renewable natural gas. And, and that manure gas, particularly, which is you know, incredibly um, carbon enhancing is 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 really needs those kinds of incentives to continue to pull, you know, the kind of scale and opportunity that there is there. You know, to the positive within renewable natural gas more broadly, uh, you know, landfill natural gas, landfill RNG is is actually monetized through a different market. So LCFS is not that determinative there, where it's right. it more lives with within the RINs. And so that market has seen a massive movement and and a lot of activity, and you've seen a series of large transactions there over the last three to six months. And so that has a different um, demand pull and we're seeing a lot of interest and a lot of demand and really strong pricing, right? Where, where LCFS may be weak, but landfill gas is incredibly strong. And then on the, what we like to describe as, as organic um, gas, where it's sort of a mixture of, of manure and organic food waste, uh, which is what Vanguard Renewables does a lot of. Um, that is in some ways the, the that's the Goldilocks place in the middle where there are a lot of opportunities. It's, it's not as expensive per, to produce as manure gas. It isn't quite as, as carbon positive, but it is still you know, really good at, at capturing methane. Um, and so you know, we think there's a, a real interest in the development and expansion of that at, on, on the offtake level, level by gas companies and, and consequently by states. Okay. Um, so kind of a two-part question coming up. Um, I'm curious to your views on innovations in the RNG market, what you've seen through your stewardship of both Vanguard Renewables and your other company based around landfill, which is Vision RNG. And then um, 
in terms of these projects themselves, you know, we've noticed a few that are more wed to the municipal market and sort of wondering, you know, when the day is going to come when they might work with the traditional project finance market. And I'm just curious your views, your views on both. Uh, if, if we sort of, I think private capital is making a huge impact on accelerating this deployment. And I think that's been great to be part of. And, and that applies sort of across the board. Uh, we're, we're seeing replicability of the technologies there. You know, many of these things have been around for, for quite some time where we have a lot of experience at this point with, with anaerobic digesters and, uh, there's both a, a, a core technology of how they work, and then there's an operating discipline and operating approach that, that is important because they are um, slightly complex machines, uh, right? You need to keep the chemistry in the right place for them to perform the way that they're supposed to. And uh, that, that comes to controlling the feedstock and, and thinking through what you put in it. And so, uh, you know, on the whole, we've, we've seen improvement across the various important pieces, um, right, scale and replication and those things all just uh, keep making a difference. There haven't been massive technology changes. You're not seeing step function changes in either cost nor technology, right? It's not like um, energy storage where lithium batteries changed the game and then the cost curve driven by lithium batteries has, has been really important or, or the solar driven cost curve. Um, the things that are what they are continue to perform better. Uh, but there isn't, you know, this isn't an area where there's nonlinear technology change that we've seen a lot of yet. Uh, and then from the funding side, you know, the, the, there is a lot of opportunity uh, for the private capital to, to be involved, to bring value to the situation. Um, that's what we're doing with, with both Vanguard and, and Vision RNG. And yet, the markets are not necessarily wedded all the way to, to strict project finance, uh, given the way the offtakes are structured. So if it's, you know, an LCFS oriented offtake or uh, landfill gas in the RINs, those are, are trickier to have long-term contracts and long-term contract offtake. So at the moment, you have a bit of a gap where the contract market might be versus where the spot market is. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, really super efficient project finance structures are are wanting more certainty of cash flow than these markets provide and yet we're we're back in an you know an inflationary environment and so that pricing flexibility is accruing value to the projects at the moment where you know locking in a contract structure may or may not be the the perfect solution um given changing costs in in competitors and, and in the world. So, right, sort of those inflation adders that used to exist in solar PPAs and then went away is, is certainly something that, that people want back. And so um, when you bring that to RNG, it's not clear that um, you have people who want to lock in, you know, the bid-ask spread on where a long-term contract is, is is much wider than the bid-ask spread on the, on the spot price. So. Um, Got it. Thank you for that. Well, you, you brought it up. Um, let's talk about Build Back Better, um, you know, which uh, again, uh, you know, it's, we could probably put in a rearview mirror at this point, but, you know, certainly um, part of the package of tax incentives was reared towards biomass. It was reared towards lots of things, you know, for, for carbon capture and things like hydrogen hubs. And um, I think a lot of our developer audience, of course, was more interested in things like the ITC for standalone storage being pretty important uh, in all this. But the, the biomass stuff was extensive. I mean, there was a lot of different categories about what would qualify. Um, and, um, 
you know, I kind of wanted to get your views on, on how that would help the industry along, uh, number one. And then from a, a policy perspective, if you think, you know, at least for biomass and RNG, are we, we going to see some of those uh, tax sweeteners show up elsewhere in um, subsequent legislation? Should it come up a watered down version of Build Back Better or whatever comes of it? I mean, I, I, I would start with, you know, tax equity is, you know, I, you, you can understand why it's a policy that Washington chooses, but the shift in how it was going to be manifested was an incredibly important thing, right? It remains a key environmental priority and it's a market priority. It's changing, you know, it's deprioritizing kind of green eye, eye shades in accountants and lawyers and putting value into people trying to build things and lowering the energy costs of, of for, for the American people. So it's sort of like such a good, easy policy of value shift from, you know, a select group of banks and, and their service providers to just getting projects done. And, and it's not a greater burden on the taxpayer. It's just a smart move. And as you take those changes from both extensions of those, you know, ITC and PTC and, and thinking about the value of a cash grant to other markets, you the keys in those other markets has been reducing uncertainties or changes. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of interest in carbon capture as an example, but 45Q is not a well-proven question. And so getting clarity to where you can simplify and remove risk around what are these packages was just so important, right? We've all been kind of waiting and wanting clarity. You, your, your question then switches from like, how important do you think this is, which, which I think it, you know, it's incredibly important. It's sort of at the top of the list. And in particularly because it doesn't cost the federal government much money. It's just a change in how they manifest a policy. Mm-hmm. For these other technologies or these other opportunities, it, it's almost more important because it gets the ball rolling. Uh, if you think back to where solar and wind were, you know, the DOE loan guarantees that kicked off a couple of these really large solar projects just got the ball rolling. And, and it's not that the, the DOE was the best lender. But doing a $500 million loan to a solar project was an important step that then gave banks permission to sort of step in and follow up. And so how can the the government do those things in some of these other paths has been really important. You you then asked, well, okay, when and how do they show up? You know, first and foremost, are we going to get, we're at this specific moment in time, right? It's June 2nd, the clock is ticking. The time you, you have to bring a package under reconciliation in this Congress is you know, surprisingly short. You're seeing you know, negotiations between Schumer and Manchin largely in the Senate trying to see if they can put together the package of important things. It is our sense that, that climate and specifically tax-related incentives for climate remain in the conversation. Where that breaks and who gets the goodies effectively as they move beyond these really large major things is where, you know, I don't think anyone really knows anymore, right? But trying to, to uh, put forward a rational decision model around the evolution of Build Back Better or this subsequent negotiation is, is thankfully not something that we're required to do because it's been, you know, mind-bendingly difficult, right? Like the logic is there, the incentives are there, the economic justification is there, the politics are there, and the process failures have been tremendous. And so, um, you know, it's our view that many of these things would be great to have, but I we can't really get into the specifics on this bill. If it happens, what are the smaller pieces that are going to kind of keep going from Build Back Better um, now, right? Like it's it's sort of so precarious and so small 
what the game is and the amount of people that are trying to decide has shrunk where it's a, you know, it's just hard to read into who's going to decide what when it comes to, to getting something over the line, if it gets over the line. If you then ex- just extend the timeline, the only way it's a relevant question is, you know, after a, it was hard to see a post-election narrative where any of this legislation is on the docket. So, you know, you're, you're kind of back to a 2024 legislative session at best. Um, and so, yeah. you know, for some of these categories, it's hugely important. And yet, as likely as not, you know, nothing's going to happen. And it's sort of a travesty. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, let's shift gears uh, literally to EV. Um, yeah, you guys have made a series of concentrated bets in the space. Um, what do you believe are the next steps are for there? Um, and it seems like it's an industry that continues to just grow almost in the early innings. And like, I'm asking whether there's an ability for scalable infrastructure investment, but it still feels like the early innings on some degree. Um, where do you think we are there are now for EV? Um, and then particularly a, a very important question here in terms of SARS numbers for EV, you know, is there enough incentives at the state and federal levels to, to get EV growing and then growing to a, an nth degree? Uh, or do you believe a further corrections needed? I, mean, I think we're, we've been investing in electric vehicles and electric vehicle infrastructure, you know, in one way or another since the beginning of the firm we see the right infrastructure in the right places and the intersection of mobility and the grid as you know critically important a set of interconnectedness and and worlds that only sort of meet and are going to meet more and more over time so it's a really dynamic and interesting place and there is also a a sort of a cost curve going on that changes where economics sit within commercial or, or economically driven applications and then you know, just massive changes in the availability of vehicles for the consumer. And so if you chop that up into categories, um, you know, I think we're we're quite happy with our partnership with Highland Electric Fleets, right? They're the leading electric school bus provider and operator in the country. It is one of those things where purely on a health basis, it's imperative for students, right? It pays back on a health basis, but it also is economically attractive over time. A number of school school districts have had to go get budget increases because diesel costs have gone through the roof and they're suddenly out of money. Well, in a in an electric world, you don't have that cost volatility and you can just run your school buses with your kids, right? And, and so there's a moment in time where volumes need to scale up. You're seeing um, volumes pick up, but that, that push and pull of when and how does the scale hit the right price point um, that it changes from a, a pilot-oriented industry to a scale-oriented industry. So you, know, you have a bunch of places where they're doing pilots, and then you have you know, a few districts that have, have taken the lead. And so with, um, you know, in this case, the, the, the incentive, uh, sorry, the infrastructure bill passed the school bus uh, incentives. And so that's rolling out. You know, the EPA has a first phase. I think there's an opportunity to really improve that for the future. But um, you're going to see a lot of movement in, in school buses, just as an example. As you move into smaller vehicles, um, you know, the logistics chain and all these other places where total cost of ownership just wins, right? Like it's not just power prices versus uh, gasoline prices, but, but volatility and the changes in those values that really can get monetized in a different way 
and electric electricity just makes more sense, right? And so we see a lot of fleets starting to try to figure it out. You still have this uh, chicken and egg of supply and volume. And you're at a phase where more and more manufacturers have products coming to market, but supply chain issues within within kind of the lithium battery side or vehicles in general, whether it's chips, et cetera, are making supply a little bit lumpier and a little bit slower than it would be in a normalized environment. But otherwise, I think things would be you know, flying into implementation and the industry would be racing to kind of keep up with itself. Your, your last question, when you jump to SARS, you're now sort of talking about the, the consumer space. Yeah. And you know, there have been massively important statements that have huge implications on, on sell-through, not yet, but over the next three to five years. And that has to do with, you know, if you if you go back, and I don't mean to go become a, a vehicle wonk, but you know, when when General Motors had its new board um, during the to the sort of government or intervention, um, it went to get a new engine approved, and a new engine is something like two billion dollars of of spent, and the new board said, well, why? And and effectively, the culture had been, well, that always happens, right? It's time for a new engine. We run a new engine program, and. The board pushed really hard on that and, and ultimately was approved, but it went through three cycles of going to the to the full board of General Motors because that's how consequential new platform commitments are. Well, as you roll that forward to today, um, Volkswagen, uh, Buick, I think it was, Buick just committed to being all electric. Um, and right now they haven't launched their first EV yet, but you have platforms and brands becoming fully electric. And it means what they've stopped doing is spending that $2 billion on an engine. They're putting all of that development capital into an electrified architecture and starting to optimize it. And so you're starting to see, you'll see these sort of cost and systems change where uh, wire harnesses and how electricity moves among a vehicle and all these sort of structural things that are, are constraints driven by the multimodality of having a sort of gasoline driven powertrain and then a 12 volt battery system and all of these intersections in a car simplify and start to see real costs come out because a number of things, the cost breakdown on vehicles can be at a million units, right? A windshield wiper blade is, you know, cost effective at a million units a year. And therefore huge amounts of things are designed in automotive around a windshield wiper blade. That can dictate what is the slope of your windshield, what is your A-pillar, what all of these things start to change in EVs. And you've seen it with, you know, some of the things Tesla has done, but it's when it moves into the organizations that are um, broader market share, broader market penetration. And you've seen customer demand where, you know, I, I signed up for a Ford Lightning. I'm not getting one, you know, this year. Uh, and, and you know, it's just, it, it is starting to move into products that have, broader mass acceptance, the the use of the product is better. And, you know, the range anxiety piece is going to start to evolve where you both will have charging stations and or range that is longer. Um, and so people will begin to understand how that works, right? And we've, you know, when we own DVGO, there's a component of that business that is effectively range anxiety insurance. And then there's a component of making sure there's enough charging available to help drivers when they need to charge away from home. And And both of those things are moving and there's a lot of both federal money and you know companies focused on solving that, and so uh, that becomes a virtuous circle where it just looks easier. It is easier. It's you know even comparing uh, public EV infrastructure where for EVgo we were building one station and you had one 50 kW station. Well now 
new EV go stations are a lot more or, or Electrify America, you pull up and there's eight, you know, 150 kW stations. And and the that means you won't have wait time. It means you charge faster. It means you start to think about what is the, the activity I'm going to do and then when and how I'm, am I going to charge. Um, and so those things just need to roll through and it needs to be products that everyone wants to buy because the truth is when you drive an electric car, it's really hard to want to go back. Um, and so then it's how do you solve the things that keep you from buying them? And how do you get people to drive them? And, and you know, that applies, you know, across most manufacturers. And so, you know, as you can tell, we're really enthusiastic. It's just a question of when and how. And, and the incentives um, are important, but they're, you know, and, and they continue to need to be structured a little bit differently. I am concerned about those because, uh, you know, Joe Manchin is certainly not a fan of some of these incentives, and that's a longstanding issue. It's not a new problem. Um, and so how do you create the right incentives to increase adoption and use, but also, you know, where do they make sense? Where are they competing? Um, how can people get supply? Because supply is a problem across many cars, you know, but EVs in particular have supply and availability problems. And so, you know, it's because there's more demand than people thought, you know, and, and, and it's sort of Ford is, is the, the sort of poster child of that demand coming through where, where the, they created a nice Mustang E and they created a truck and holy cow, people want them. Okay, well, now what do we do? More people want them than we wanted. And it's, it's about building the right product. And, in, and historically, a lot of EVs were still regulatory driven. We need one. It needs to have these attributes, not how do we make a great car? Uh, because if you start with how do we make a great car and make it EV, it's really hard for it not to be a better experience. So uh, in aggregate, the subsidy point is, is sort of derivative to all of the other points that I was making, which is um, the math is starting to work. The products are starting to be just incredible. And the infrastructure is there. And the, there sort of can become a virtuous cycle where you know, the best way to build more, more charging stations is when the demand is there to build more start charging stations. And, and so that basic footprint is there. Um, so you can feel pretty good. I haven't found a time where I've had to wait ever that I can think of. Well, Ruben, I'm also a fellow car nut as uh, I first started covering the tier one auto supply chain at the height of the Great Recession. And I learned how all of these things work. So I really do appreciate the nuanced answer and seeing um, what these cars are trying to do uh, to get be viable and commercial uh, and get and get sold. Um, anyway, so just to conclude here, um, and thank you for your time today, sir. Uh, you've just brought us to third fund. Um, you have seemingly invested in every uh, end of the energy transition spectrum, and yet there's more to come. But I really wanted to get your views on what particular uh, core areas you're going to be looking for for your, your next fund here as you deploy. So for us, we, we really like the diversified approach that we take. We invest in, in power, mobility, as well as agriculture and, and waste to value. And so it means that we see a diverse range of activities and, and we're both not locked into places that might be overly hot, but also we're not sort of stuck in, in narrow niches. Um, and it means we also see a breadth of activity and, and we end up relatively balanced across our three sectors. We continue to see that flow and, and approach within the work that we have on our desk. I think the scale of what is going on continues to grow. Uh, I wanted, we're, we're within power and mobility. How do you get the right infrastructure in place? How do you take advantage of, you know, what may actually be 
a tragic choice to to massively increase our our uh, methane exports where LNG exports, if we do it at scale, is going to lock in a higher natural gas environment here in the U.S., which raises electricity prices. And that's really good for renewables, and it's uh, really good for EVs. Uh, EVs more on the gasoline side, but you're, you're sort of living in a different environment in terms of both understanding the high volatility and high fluctuations that are endemic in a fossil-driven to kind of flow-disruptable world, as opposed to this transition where uh, once you build things, your cost structure is really, really well known. And there's just massive economic value uh, to the society and the economy, but also to, to the investor. And so we see a lot of that activity, and we're also seeing um, more dynamic ways to think about uh, bringing technology into to scaled agriculture that, that you know, optimizes cost and, and consumer product. Um, opportunity and, and kind of how do you bring the best products. So, so those three categories remain, it's kind of what we've always been doing, but the size and scale of what we see is, is unprecedented. Uh, and that's really exciting. You know, it's not a simple world at the moment. Um, it's not clear whether you know, we had a number of, of new friends in, in energy transition funds coming out of traditional oil and gas investors. And, um, you know, I think the proof will be in the pudding in the near term as to whether they immediately return to being oil and gas investors because uh, oil is as high as it is. And, and was this transition thing a marketing gimmick or where they actually think the world is going to go? For us, we see an enduring, irrevocable transition. It's necessary, it's economic, and it matters. And so we just keep going at what we do and see more uh, sort of opportunity and scale than we ever have, which is is amazing. So it's it, it's exciting moment to be here um, as you build, you know, scaled infrastructure that has resilient long-term value. Uh, you just have to sort of fight through the complexity of what that means. Um, and that's what we're going to focus on is what is the next platform? Where is the next area? Uh, you know, we built a utility scale battery business um, and have sold it that other folks, you know, might've been a little slower or a little later. And, and now, um, we're looking at sectors like that or other things where we have a great deal of knowledge and are trying to figure out what to do next. And, and so, you know, it's sort of, it's not rinse and repeat. It's take the next step forward in the energy transition and use the knowledge that we've built over a decade plus of doing this that defines our pipeline and, and gets us pretty excited. Great. And uh, Ruben, of course, we're referring to Key Capture Energy, right? Uh, that was the business that we sold. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Great. Well, that's about all the time we have. Uh, Ruben, thanks for taking the time today and uh, please uh, tune in next time. Work out. <laughs>